Good morning. It's so good to have you here worshiping with us this morning. It's good to have those of you who are at home watching. Stand with me if you would, and let's worship our God.
Well, that is without a doubt our prayer this morning. Open up the floodgates. Open up the heavens. We want to we want to see you. And it's just wonderful. You know, I'm I feel like the psalmist when he said uh when they I was glad when they said, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Just wonderful to gather together with God's people, to hear you lifting up praises to the Lord, to see your uh, smiling faces. So wonderful that you are here with us this morning. We are continuing in our study of the book of Revelation, and we're going to be this morning looking at chapter 14. One of the great challenges in studying through the book of Revelation is breaking it down into uh, passages or nuggets that we can understand and have a, a feel like we have a real understanding of what God is saying. Now, so far, I've been receiving feedback, and and you're saying that this is helpful, that you are understanding, and I want to really want to try to continue that. I wanted to. I've been trying to get through a chapter, but sometimes it's just that's just impossible. And this week, I really struggled with this passage, and today, I'm just, we're doing five verses, okay? So, I'm sorry we're slowing down just a little bit, but I felt like that we needed to do this. And, and, and the message today is called Winners and Losers. You know, our society loves winners. I mean, uh, whether it's in uh, politics or business or entertainment or sports, I mean, we love people who succeed. But on the other hand, we don't tolerate losers very well. I mean, if you're a coach and you're not winning, uh, well, you, you get fired. 
If you're a player and you're not winning, you get traded. I mean, if you're an executive and the company's not doing well, well, uh, you get replaced. If you're a politician and you're, you're not doing well, you get voted out of office. I mean, our heroes are all those people that overcome all these obstacles and in the end triumph. Interestingly, the Bible talks a great deal about winners and losers. Jesus described those who are unbelieving as the ultimate losers. They lose their very soul. They lose everything in the end. But the Bible describes the Christian life in terms of triumph. Uh, For example, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, the apostle Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Look, underline that word in your thinking, conquer. We conquer. In 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 4, the apostle John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes in the Son of God? Now, you see all those words, all three times it says we're overcomers. It says we have the victory. In, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57, uh, Paul says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory. You see, and, and notice that the, the common denominator in all of those verses is that we win through our faith in Jesus Christ. Because we identify with him. He is the ultimate winner. He's the real winner. And when we identify with him, we become winners with him. We win when we trust Christ and we submit our lives to him. You know, victory comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And we submit and we give our lives to him to, to serve. Now, the opening verses of Revelation chapter 14 uh, introduce us once again to the 144,000. And this is the most triumphant group of men in the entire Bible. Now, the Bible talks about other faithful, uncompromising people but this is the, by, by far the, the greatest number of people all at once who are experiencing great triumph and victory. And they emerge from the greatest holocaust in the world, the, the tribulation. And, and, and like 144,000 Daniels or 144,000 Apostle Pauls, they, they are battle-weary, but they are triumphant. And if you remember, we're first introduced to this remarkable group back in chapter 7. And uh, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16 tells us that the sixth seal brings such terror that the people of the world are going to cry out to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to deliver them from the presence of the Lamb. And they're going to say, uh, 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 who will deliver us from the great day of the wrath, of his wrath that has come? And who is able to stand? 
You see, at that point of the tribulation, the world will have already experienced widespread wars and famines and and deadly plagues and earthquakes and other natural disasters which will result in the death of millions. And in light of all of that devastation, there's still yet the, the trumpets and the, uh, the, the trumpets and the bowls yet to come. And so the question becomes, well, who can survive this? Who, who will make it through? And it's against that backdrop that the 144,000 are introduced. They will survive all of Satan's persecution, and they will be protected in the midst of God's judgments on the sinful world. Nothing will be able to harm them, see, because God has sealed them. As we come to chapter 14, we have to keep in mind that chapters 12 through 14 form a kind of an interlude in the story of God's judgment on the earth. Chapter 12 and 13, if you will remember, take us back through the tribulation and show us what Satan is doing during the tribulation. We've seen all the seals and what God has been doing, but now we go back and we look and see what Satan has been doing, and and Satan has been at work. Satan has uh, established the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, he's, he wants to be worshipped as God in the world. And so chapter 14 now returns us to what God is doing. We're still in the interlude, but we're looking at what God is doing. So I want you to look with me in these first five verses of chapter 14. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have been defiled, have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And this is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather here today in your name and to to worship you. And as we think about the concept of of winners and losers, I want to ask you, God, today that your spirit would move over this group of people. And Lord, that it would even expand out into that that, uh, digital audience of people that are watching. And Lord, that you would move in our hearts and give us an understanding of what it is you really are doing and how we can be winners in this world and in the future. I pray you bring encouragement to your people. 
today. I I pray you'd help us to make adjustments in our life that we need to make so that we can be more effective. We'd be greater winners in the days ahead. And Lord, I pray that you would bring the losers to you and make them victors in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage shows us the victory that the 144,000 have achieved, if I use that word, through faith in Christ, faith in the Lamb. These are the winners. These are the victors. These are the conquerors. These are the overcomers. And by contrast, we can see, or by, by contrast, we can see the, the, the characteristics of losers. But I want us to look today at four characteristics of winners. Four characteristics of winners. First, winners are secure in his power. Winners are secure in the power of the Lamb. And it tells us in verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Don't you love that word, behold? Now, we don't use that word today, behold, but it's a beautiful word. It's, it's most appropriate in the book of Revelation. It just means, man, look at that. This is awesome. And what arrested John's uh, attention was the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, don't miss this incredible picture. You can, you can read that and start going through the rest of the passage, and you could miss one of the most important things about this whole passage. The Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And you see, the appearance of the Lamb on Mount Zion is a monumental moment in redemptive history. The the psalmist wrote about this very moment in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 6. God himself says this. He says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Where's Zion? It's in Jerusalem. It's It's the temple mount. It's where God has placed his temple, where God rules and reigns on earth. And then the Son, God's Son responds to what God has done, and here's what he says. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You see, this passage describes the return of Christ to the earthly Mount Zion where he rules and he reigns in victory. This is a picture that God is giving us after we've gone through the horrible uh, picture of what Satan, the dragon, and the Antichrist and the false prophet are doing. And he just reminds us, listen, we're the winners. We're the winners in all of this. Yes, these horrible things do happen, but friends, we are the winners. 
And, and Jesus takes us to the end of the war of the ages, and he lets us see the end of the outcome. What really happens? You know, this is the victory parade. This is the celebration. And now because of that, some people have, have seen this as a vision of, of heaven. But now think about this. If Mount Zion here refers to heaven then the whole point would be lost because that would mean that the 144,000 would be dead. But the, what, is, what he's telling us is that, no, they have not died. God has preserved them. They're a time. And you see, that, that, would, that would render their, their seal that God put on meaningless. That would also bypass all the Old Testament prophecies of a glorious and victorious earthly kingdom because Christ is going to establish his kingdom here on earth. And finally, it it tells us that a voice came out of heaven, which tells us that what's happening here is a scene on earth. Now, so some commentators also say that the number 144,000 is not to be taken literally. They tell us that it's simply a symbol for the church, or in some cases, some would say it was uh, the uh, uh, tribulation saints. But, um, and some cults insist that this refers to them. But as we saw in our study in chapter 7, this group of 144,000 are real men chosen from the 12 tribes of Israel. There's 144,000 of them. Now, that number, I believe, is symbolic. It pictures uh, the fullness of salvation that God has promised. But it's also literal. Just like there are seven churches, and that number seven pictures the the perfection of, of Christ in bringing about salvation through the church, but there were literally seven churches. And God's, God has both of these elements here in mind. We're, we're looking at real people that are representative of real, God's real salvation, God's real victory in this world. Now, um, as, as, and John reminds us that they have been sealed. He says they have, they have the lambs. He says the name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, unbelievers, remember, are going to receive the mark of the beast. They're going to have that on their forehead. But the 144,000 are going to have the mark of God on their foreheads. And, and Satan and the unbelieving world is, is going to, or are going to seek to kill these powerful preachers and stop them from fulfilling their work. But God will not permit them. Because, to be harmed because he has already sealed them. He's put his protection over them. Now, throughout the outpouring of God's cataclysmic judgments and Satan's fury, they are going to preach the gospel. They're going to confront sinners with their sin. They're going to call them to repentance and faith in the Savior. And they're going to, to, to tell everybody that all the cataclysmic events that are occurring are the result of God's judgment. Now, let me ask you, how many people like to hear when bad things happen that God's bringing judgment on us? Now, that's, that's uh, condemned, right? Well, they're going to hate that, and they're going to try to kill these men, 
tried to stop them from proclaiming the truth. But despite Satan's best efforts, all 144,000 will survive. You notice there wasn't 143,999. All of them survive, and they are there. And they'll enter the kingdom as living people. Now, the, the story of these victorious believers illustrates for us triumphant Christian living. See, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you submit your life to him, God will use you to accomplish his purposes and nothing, nothing can come against you accomplishing the purposes that God has called you to accomplish. Do you understand that? Well, that is something for us all as believers to grasp. Nothing can stop you from doing what God wants you to do when you have put your trust in him and you have submitted your life to him. Now, I'm not talking about you going off and living your life the way you want to and asking God to bless what you are doing. I'm talking about you submitting your life to him and you doing what he asks you to do. That's what I'm talking about. And you see, if you have trusted in Christ, you are a winner. Listen, you are secure in his power. I want to give you some hope. I want to give you some encouragement this morning. I hope you will listen very carefully to what I'm going to say because really what I'm going to say is exactly the words of God. I'm going to give you some scripture, and I hope that that you'll let this truth soak into your soul, and that you'll let it go down to the depths of your being and and flow out to your fingertips, and it fills you in fully and completely and just overwhelms your life. Listen to this truth. You see, if if you have trusted in Jesus, then you can take comfort in the promises of Psalm 95 and verse uh, one or verse five. Listen, he says this, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. Does that sound real to you? The arrow that flies by day. What about the bullet that flies through your house? We have a pastor in our association, who had a bullet go through his house. He lives in Charleston. A bullet passed through his house. And he has rearranged the, the rooms and the furniture, put his children on the inner walls. We live in that kind of day. But listen, this is real. Listen again. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look with your own, with your eyes, and see the recompense of the wicked, the losers. For you have made the Lord, my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, no, nor will any plague come near your tent. Again, 
You've trusted in Jesus. You've submitted your life to him. You're walking in obedience to him. These words are precious. Verse 11, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against the stone. Do you remember that Satan came to Jesus and used those very words? And he says, if you'll jump off the temple, then God will will protect you. The Bible doesn't tell us to live reckless lives, selfish lives. But the Bible tells us that when we are doing what God has called us to do, we can trust that God will bear us up and God will protect us. Verse 13, you will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Verse 15, he will call upon me and I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Friends, those are words to you who have trusted Jesus Christ, who are walking with him. Let those words soak into your being and give you comfort and hope. God will protect his own, and he will bring you triumphantly through your trials. And that, that's true not both of those of the 144,000 who are on the earth during the tribulation, and that's true even the tribulation saints. God brings us always through victoriously. Jesus promised in John six thirty seven. he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You come to him? He'll take you. And, he's, and, and as, as a believer, you are eternally secure in his power because Jesus says in John 10, 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You're in Father's, the Father's hand. In our Vacation Bible School passage, Philippians 1, 6, see, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, have you believed in Jesus? Have you submitted your life to him? These words are for you. Jude offers 24, offers praise. It says to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And 1 Peter 1, 5 says that knowing that we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. You see, we can both live and minister boldly and confidently. Does that encourage you? Well, I've got one more for you. The majestic words of Romans chapter 8 eloquently summarize the marvelous truth that God protects and delivers his own. Listen what Paul says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? 
God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's already won. He's already exalted. So if we have believed in him, identified him, submitted ourselves to him, then we are victors. We're winners. See, just as it is written, verse excuse me, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or COVID-19? What will separate us from the love of Christ? Just as is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Friend, that is the attitude that the 144,000 came to their service with. We're just sheep to be slaughtered. We're the Lord's to be used. We've given ourselves to him. And what happens when you do that? You're a victor. You're win. You're a conqueror. Verse 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. I hope those words are comforting to you because, you see, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, then you are one of these conquerors. You are secure in his power. There's another characteristic of winners. Winners are joyful in his praise. Look at verse 2. Then I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now, standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion in this monumental moment in redemptive history are the 144,000. They share in his victory. They share in his triumph. And with all the devastation that they have seen, with all the trouble that they have faced, with all the rejection that they have experienced, with all the hostility and the hatred and persecution they have endured, you might think that they would be just so depressed that they couldn't do anything. But the reality is they are joyful in his praise. Because what do they do? They join in with the singing that is coming thunderously from heaven in praise to God. In fact, it's, it's kind of like that, you know, the ball game where you go through and it's hard fought and it comes down maybe to the very last play of the game. And when you win, it makes that victory all the more sweet. All that they have endured, see, is that much more to praise the Lord for, for his power in overcoming everything that has happened. And, and they are praising God. And, he, and, he, and the voice that he heard, it says, was, was, was loud. It was loud like thunder. And it was continuous. It was the sound of like of many waters, like a waterfall that constantly uh, makes a roar. But the voice was not just 
noise, it, it had a musical quality. It says it had the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, harps are frequently associated in the Old Testament with joyous praise. David played on the harp. He prayed his, his psalms, his, his hymns to the Lord on the harp. It was praise and joy. And the, and the angels of, 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 of heaven are going to be singing as well. The, the new song in heaven before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders is the song of redemption. Now, the, the angels join the Old Testament saints the, the raptured church and the tribulation martyrs in praising God for the salvation that he has accomplished. And, and while the angels don't experience uh, redemption, they do rejoice at it. We see that from, from Luke chapter 15. The, the angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner. And you see, all heaven will overflow with praise because of God's redemptive work culminating in the return of Jesus Christ. Because when he re- returns, it's done. And every, every being in heaven is, pray, is praising God in joy. And those 144,000 standing there on Mount Zion join in the singing. They're singing a new song, and it's a song, it says, that nobody can learn except the 144,000. Wow. The unregenerate can't sing this song because they're losers. They can't sing the song of triumph. And and, and listen, because they haven't been purchased by Christ's blood, only the 144,000 could learn a song because, see, this new song is focused uniquely on the deliverance that God has brought about in their lives. Do you remember when God brought Israel out of Egypt and then delivered them even from Pharaoh and his army that followed them out to the Red Sea? you remember what happened immediately afterward? They all went out in the wilderness and they sang the song of Moses. The horse and rider have been hurled into the sea. And that whole song is about how God uniquely redeemed Israel out of Egypt and from Pharaoh and his army. And there's going to be a new song that only the 144,000 that have been uniquely redeemed out of the tribulation are going to sing. And they're going to sing about the great things that God has done in the midst of all that has been happening. So you, every, every one of us have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And all of us, we have our own unique ways in which God has worked in our lives and delivered things that he's delivered us from. We all have our own unique song of praise to sing to God. And we should be recognizing what God has done in our lives uniquely, especially to us, and making sure that we joyfully give God praise for what he's doing, what he has done. Uh, you know, the, the mark of a, of a triumphant Christian is continuous, constant, joyful praise to the Lord. When we pray on Wednesday night, we always begin with praise to God. 
Our focus is always on him and what he has done. And that's the basis for everything else that we would say or do or ask from God because of who he is. Now, the 145,000 no doubt praise God throughout their life. But boy, at this time, they're going to have a lot to praise God for. Winners are joyful in his praise. Let me ask you, are you a winner or a loser? If you're a winner, you got something to sing about. You got something to praise God for. If you're a loser, not so much. Let me tell you a third characteristic about winners. Winners are pure in his service. Winners are pure in his service. Verse 4 says, the beginning of that verse says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Now, ladies, don't be offended. Because when you first read that, you might think that it's saying that women somehow defile men. Well, that's not what it's saying at all. He's simply saying that these men have not been involved involved in sexual immorality. Uh, they are sexually pure. And that's, that's really what it means. It says they have kept themselves chaste. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't married. That is, that they were, you know, celibate or, or single. But... Because, you see, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 tells us this. It says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In other words, sex within marriage doesn't defile anyone. In fact, it's it's honorable. It's something beautiful that God has designed to protect us from sexual immorality. On the other hand, he tells us that God will judge the fornicator and the adulterer. Fornication is sex outside of marriage. Uh, adultery is, is sex with someone other than your spouse. And friends, listen, God will judge that regardless of what's going on in our world, regardless of how common it is, regardless of how accepted it is in our culture, God will judge sexual immorality. And God's people should be pure. God wants a pure people that he can work for. That's part of the submitting our lives. And and is God going to use an unclean vessel in the work that he is going to do in this world. Now, uh, men, it's amazing, men so often see sex outside of marriage as a conquest, as a victory. But the truth is, that makes you the biggest loser there is. It puts you under the judgment of God. And friends, it's not something that you should be proud of. It's something that you should be ashamed of. Of. And keep in mind that in the midst of the tribulation, Antichrist will declare himself to be God and want to be worshipped. In this context, it seems that it may be indicating that in the time of, of, of the tribulation, that 
worship of Antichrist is going to go back to like the days of the fertility cults that maybe involved sexual immorality. And and it's vile and it's and it's uh incredibly perverse. Uh, understand, understand this. Sexual immorality always gets integrated into the culture at large. And if if the if the culture is religious, as in the days of the fertility cults, as in the days of the Romans or the Greeks, then you know what'll happen? Sexual immorality will get integrated into the worship. It becomes a part of the worship. If the culture is secular, then sexual immorality will gradually get integrated into the culture so that it becomes normative. It it will show up in the arts and then the music and the entertainment and then the education and ultimately the legislation. Now, if you think about it, we've got a good start on that in our day. We live in a world where the government has pretty much sanctioned and even finances sexual immorality. And with the rise of the Internet, pornography has become widely available. And even so that the the kids in here, many of the kids in here have already been exposed to that vile, perverse stuff. The the, the statistics tell us that 25% of all search engine requests on the Internet across the world are related to sex. 35% of the downloads, think about everything that is downloaded on the Internet, 35% of the downloads on the Internet are pornography. Uh, 40 million Americans say, freely admit, that they regularly visit pornographic sites. 70% of men, 18 to 24, visit vile porn sites at least once a month. And the, the, the largest consumer of online porn is men between ages 35 and 49. One third now, surprisingly, of internet users, of porn users, are women. And how about this? Sunday is the most popular day to look at porn. Thanksgiving Day is the most famous, is most, is the most popular day to download porn. And the porn industry takes in nearly $20 billion each year in the United States alone. Now, friends, does that sound like a pure nation to you? Does that sound like a pure world to you? And and the the tragic thing is, among among those statistics are many people who profess to be people who have trusted in Jesus and supposedly submitted their lives to him. No wonder the church is so anemic. And so divided. Well, the first one thing we can stand on, friends, is purity. But even in this grossly immoral day, we can hardly imagine what may be happening in the time of the tribulation. With all divine restraint removed and the world under the, the, the judgment of God, uh, sin is going to uh, flood across the world, and, and, and it's all going to be flamed by Satan and his hellish demons. It's going to be a horrible time. 
But in the midst of the of that tribulation, the 144,000, you see, are going to stand apart from their culture. They're not going to participate with what the rest of the world is doing. They're going to stand out like a a bright light, a beacon that shines in, in the darkness all around them. And really, you know what? That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be lights. He wants us to stand out from the culture. He wants us to to stand apart from all the darkness around us, doesn't he? We should. And what will happen when you do that? Well, the world will hate you. The devil will persecute you. But remember, what you're a winner. You don't just go with the losers because of persecution. You do what is right. And God will, God will take care of it. See, sexual purity is essential for triumphant Christian li- living. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Second Timothy 2.22, the, the apostle admonished this young pastor Timothy. He says, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Now notice what Paul's doing here. Here's just a few minutes of counseling. Paul says, listen, you got a problem with impurity. You, you can't overcome impurity by saying, okay, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to look at that. You've got to put something else in its place, something that is right and something that is good, and you've got to replace that with, with truth and put your energy and your time into doing what is right in God's eyes. And all that other stuff begins to fall away. If you want to serve God effectively, you must live a pure life. Winners are pure in his service. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you a winner or a loser? Are you a winner or a loser? One more characteristic of winners. They are faithful in his proclamation. Last, the middle part of verse 4 says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Again, the 144,000 are men who are proclaiming the gospel to an unbelieving world. That's their primary job. And they're going to faithfully go wherever the lamb goes, no matter what the cost. You see, this is what Jesus wants in his followers, right? He wants you to follow him, right? He said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You've got to crucify your own selfish desires, and you've got to take up the cause of Jesus Christ. That means that you can't live your life for everything that you want, and then on Sunday or some other little moment in the week, tack on, well, I'll do this for Jesus. He's talking about your life, following him. So that everything in your life is following Jesus. Not just one thing, everything. And sometimes following Jesus means going to work. Sometimes following Jesus means loving your children, taking care of them. And sometimes Jesus means talking to somebody about Jesus. But, you see, you've got to follow him. John 10, 27, Jesus told the unbelieving Jews, he says, you're not my sheep. He goes, 
my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I know who's my sheep because they're following me. And if you're not following him, you know what that means? It means you're a loser. The last part of verse 4 says, These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. You see, all believers have been purchased by God, but the 144,000 were purchased for a special purpose. They're going to be the redeemed as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, in the Old Testament, the first fruits were the first part of the crop that was harvested and that was dedicated to God and to his service. And think about this. After the church is raptured, is taken out of the world, there's not going to be anybody here to fulfill the Great Commission. There's not going to be anybody here to tell somebody about Jesus. So what's God doing? God's going to go back to Israel which he promised that he was going to redeem, and he calls out of that nation 144,000 evangelists, and these become the men that are going to proclaim, initially proclaim the gospel. And through their proclamation, other people are going to come to salvation, and the other people are going to join in the proclamation of salvation. They're the first fruits. They're the first ones that God calls out of Israel and and begins to, to fulfill that Initial promise that God gave them that they would proclaim the gospel to the world and bring a, be a blessing to the world. See, that's, this is all where the 144,000 come in. Purpose of their lives is to serve the Lord by proclaiming the gospel. They're pictured here standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. They're winners. They're winners. And may I remind you that you were purchased by the blood of the Lamb? You were purchased. And you are to be used by God for His purposes. God has called you to stand apart from the culture and to, to make him known to this lost world. And look at this last uh, part in verse 5. He says, and no lie was found in their mouth. They're blameless. The 144,000 are not going to propagate the lies of Satan. They're going to speak God's truth. As Zephaniah 3.13 says, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong, will tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Friends, everything that God, everything that God said in the Old Testament is going to come to fulfillment down to the very word. Everything. That's why I believe the Bible is absolutely true. It's absolutely infallible inerrant. It is the Word of God, and everything that God says will come about just as He says that it will. On the other hand, you know what the word that tells us that the, the unbelieving world, it says they're going to be uh, consumed with false wonders, all deception of wickedness, and deluding influence. They're losers. It's grievous to me, and I know to the Lord, how many lives of the culture and of Satan that I hear coming from the tongues of people who profess to be Christians. God's people spouting the philosophy of the world. 
That ought not to be. How easily we absorb the lies of the culture by our constant exposure to the media and to our phones and all this stuff. And we never, we never take that time to be absorbed into absorbing the Word of God and be spilling out that truth. Friends, if we're going to be speaking what we think we know, we better be speaking the truth of God rather than all the things that we hear and, and all the media. Now, let me tell you, now, those 144,000, they're going to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And I want to be one of those that faithfully proclaims the truth of the gospel. Winners are faithful in his proclamation. I want to ask you again. Are you a winner or are you a loser? I mean, are you secure in his power or are you trusting in your own power or even in the power of Satan? Are you joyful in your praise or are you living in fear and doubt? Are you pure in your service or are you impure in your own selfishness? Are you faithfully proclaiming him in your conversation, or are you talking about you and the world? I'll tell you, you don't have to be a loser. You can be a winner, and you're a winner when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you submit yourself to him. In order to do that, you have to turn from your sin. You have to Repent. That means turn away from your sin. It's it's like when you're driving down the road and you're about to pass someone on a two-lane road, and when you pull over, you see another oncoming car and you pull back in line. You change your mind. You see the danger and you change your mind. You repent when you see where your sin is taking you. It's taking you to destruction, and you need to get back on the road where you need to be. And then you need to you need to have faith in Jesus. That's like when you punch in an address in your GPS and you begin to follow turn by turn by turn, trusting that that's going to get you where you need to go. And friends, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he gives you day by day, turn by turn, how you need to walk with him. He directs you through his word, through his people, and through prayer, and God will direct you where you need to go. Winner, that's how winners live. Will you, will you repent? Will you put your faith in Jesus alone and what he's done for you? You can be a winner. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for these encouraging words to believers. And I pray, God, that you would let us take them in. I pray that they would be soul-transforming. God, help us today to not be mere hearers, but help us, God, to be doers of the word. And Lord, I pray for all those who may be unknowingly losers. God, help us to recognize that. Help us to turn away from that course of life. Help us to turn to you and put our faith in you. Help them, help them, Lord, today to do that. Make that decision in your heart right now, would you?
Make that decision right now in your heart. Will you, will you turn from your sin? That's the big question. And then trust your life to Jesus? Because even when I say that, it's, it's the Spirit of God that's moving on your heart that would even make you be willing to turn from your sin. It's, that's God's grace. It's all by His power. But if, you're, if, you, if his, his power is working in your heart today, turn from your sin. And now put your faith in him. Just, just say, Lord, I'm, I'm trusting you. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And I believe you will forgive my sin. And I want to be, be clean. I want to be pure. And I want to be faithfully following you. There are many Christians here. And you would say, you know, I, I realize, man, I, I, in many ways I've not been faithful like I should be. I've not been very secure in your power, Lord. And I just want to ask you to help me to overcome that and put my faith really truly in you. Lord, I've not been really praising you like I should, recognizing all that you're doing and giving you the the praise for it. Lord, I've not been pure. I've not been very pure. Lord, you know my struggle there. Help me, God, to replace that with something that's good and righteous and virtuous. And Lord, I, I want to be so changed that I just can't help but talk about you and make you known to the world. Lord, we ask these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And you are dismissed.